Let's turn again in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, as we continue our series on the book of Luke. And we come this morning to the birth narrative, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let us pray before standing and reading the word together. Our Father, we are amazed that we have a revelation from you, that in your truthfulness you have given to us a true revelation, dependable, that when you gave this book by divine inspiration, even though you used a writer such as Luke, it is your word. And we pray that in our hearts and minds, all of your people here will submit to the authority of the Word of God, not in this thing or that, but in all things in life. And as we hear again of the birth of our Savior from this wondrous passage, this historically true revelation, we pray that someone here that does not know Christ would come to faith in him. We ask your blessing upon our lessons and carols this evening as we read scripture and sing your praises upon our Christmas Eve service and the Sunday after, that in this season of the year, those who know you not, that you would use us to proclaim your word, to bear witness, and that the Holy Spirit would use that witness and draw sinners to Jesus. Oh, how thankful we are that we know you through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Shall we stand together? Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. This is the Word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Please be seated. Every year as we think of the birth of Christ, I stress the historical background of the birth of the Lord Jesus. This is important. It is essential. What we have read is not a sentimental story. God came down in time, in space, in a real historical setting to a real place with a real virgin mother to real sinners needing a real salvation. Way back in 1915, J. Gresham Machen made this statement. Give up history, he said, and you can retain some things. You can retain a belief in God. But philosophical theism has never been a powerful force in the world. You can retain a lofty ethical ideal, but be perfectly clear about one point. 
you can never retain a gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. In other words, it means history. A gospel independent of history is simply a contradiction in terms. So please, everyone understand that this morning as we are gathered here, what you may hear in some other churches is another matter. We are proclaiming the Word of God. We believe it to be true. What we are saying this morning is that God actually came into time and space, that He assumed human nature. This is true. This is real. This is history. And without it, we are lost. Now, in chapter 1, you will recall that the angel Gabriel had been sent from the very throne of God and had said to the virgin that she would conceive without a man, the virginal conception of Jesus. And in this passage we have read this morning, we see this virgin-born Savior for the first time. So let's begin with the historical and providential setting of Christ's birth, the history of it. History is stressed in the text. This is not myth. This is history. God came into this world, and so it mentions Octavian, Augustus Caesar, and it mentions Quirinius, who was the governor of Syria. Why does he do this? Why does Luke stress this? Why does he want us to know about this? Well, it's quite simple, because the Christian faith is based on sober fact. Again, no history, no gospel. From the birth of Christ to his resurrection from the dead, it is all history. And so there is this decree, a decree that was made by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered for taxation. It is a real decree that would have been confirmed by a Roman Senate, a registration for taxation, all the provincial Roman world involved in it. Joseph and Mary were caught in a world of international affairs. Methodical Augustus decided to take the census. Great inconvenience to journey to hometowns to register, especially for pregnant Mary. But who is really in control here? Well, here we need to think about the relationship between history and providence. History is simply the unfolding of the plan of God, the providential plan of God. Why do kings rule, let me ask? Well, you say some because they have that right because they are born kings or queens. Others are presidents or prime ministers because of votes. Yes, this is true. But Psalm 75, 7 says, God is judge, he putteth down one and he setteth up another. Daniel 2, 21, he removeth kings and sets up kings. And so Augustus is king only at the Lord's sovereign bidding. God provided here a greater king, and he used this pagan king in the process. Remember that Augustus' reign is noted to have been a reign of peace. And some New Testament scholars think that Luke wants us to see under the surface that the Lord is now establishing the reign of the Prince of Peace. As we read in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But the point to take is this. Augustus had no idea that his policies and desires for his empire are serving the true king whose universal empire is established as God sovereignly guides the policies of this pagan king. As Spurgeon somewhere said, Caesar's whim is God's decree. So when we think of Christmas, 
Christmas is filled with comfort, the comfort of the knowledge that God in his providence is working in history. And God is still orchestrating the events of history for the extension of his son's kingdom. And just as no one looking in could have known what God was doing, the same is true today. God was using the whole Roman Empire to fulfill his sovereign purpose to bring the Savior into the world. Now, I cannot stress enough how important it is for our Christian living that we understand that God is in control of history, that you and I do not live in a chance universe. Do you know the little bit from poor Richard's almanac, Benjamin Franklin? Do you remember this? For the want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For the want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. All for the want of a horseshoe nail. Well, in a way that that old deist would never have understood, the lives of God's elect are down to the details, controlled by the providence of God, as in this world he works for his son's great name. And so we as people of God can say with confidence, Air into being, I was brought, thine eye did see, and in thy thought my life in all its perfect plan was ordered ere my days began. One of the things that I love to do with people in my congregation, sometimes who are going through great difficulties, is to point them to question 27, 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of our great catechisms that really is a Reformed confession. It's about the providence of God. Let me read it to you again. What do you mean by the providence of God? And here's the answer. The almighty and everywhere power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things? The answer is that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and in all things which may hereafter befall us, we may place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father that nothing shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Now that's what's happening here in Luke chapter 2. So we may not talk about Christmas without talking about the grand truths of the sovereignty of God and providence. We see God in this passage. We're filled with adoring wonder that he would condescend to save sinners like us. We recognize that this God is working out his will behind all of the phenomena of history and every trace of self-dependence for salvation is eradicated. It is all God's doing and we are made to be, as Christians, thoroughgoing supernaturalists. God is at work in his world. By the way, let me mention something before moving on. The critics of the New Testament used to say that verses 1 and 2 were just all wrong, just filled with historical mistakes. And then reams of papyri were discovered, dated by the way, showing that a census was taken every 14 years. And we have a document showing that people would be required to go back to their own country for it. 
And then Sir William Ramsey dug up a stone showing that Quirinius was governor of Syria at this time. But of course, we knew God's word was true even before such discoveries, didn't we? Caesar Augustus is in his grave. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, and he now rules and he reigns. Let's go secondly to the place, to the place of Christ's birth. The journey to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, 90 miles south of Nazareth, seven miles southwest of Jerusalem. Now, some of you moms think about this when you had your children or perhaps are about to. You don't want to be 10 minutes from the hospital, but she had a long way to go. And what is stressed, of course, is the Davidic ancestry. In verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Jesse the Bethlehemite was Joseph's father. By stressing the birth in Bethlehem, Luke is stressing covenant history. God is saying, I have since before the beginning of time determined that I will save my people that would fall into sin. I will have compassion on them. I will fulfill my purpose just as I promised David. It will come about. And this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Micah 5.2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And so Joseph must register there because the Roman government said that he must register there. But Joseph also must register there because God ruled the Roman governors and determined that his word would be fulfilled. He is arranging the birth of Christ in the place that he determined that it would happen in fulfillment of his promise so that once again we see the providence of God and once again we see God keeps his word. He always keeps his word. And so Mary, very pregnant, travels with Joseph. Now what's the point of stressing the betrothal? The point is that the marriage had not been consummated. The passage is once again stressing the virginal conception and the virgin birth of Christ. But thirdly, as we look at the text, note with me the humble birth of the Son of God. Will you read verses 6 and 7 again with me? And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so they arrived. The days of her pregnancy were fulfilled. Mary delivered her child, gives birth, and wraps him in swaddle, strips of cloth that were used in ancient times to keep the limbs of the baby straight. And this baby was laid in what was probably a feeding trough. This because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we don't know what that means precisely. The word can mean a guest room. It can mean a number of things. But at any rate, he had nowhere to lay his little head when he was born. Nowhere that we would think of for the Son of God come into this world. What's being stressed? What does the Lord want us to see? I will tell you. 
He wants us to see this is God's own son, yet Mary's little baby. She took him in her arms. Undoubtedly, Joseph held and rocked him. And this is how near God has come to us. God came in the flesh, nourished from his mother's breast, skin on skin, real flesh, a real incarnation. God became man. He took our nature. God assumed human nature. Mary was the mother of him who was the eternal son of God. And how practical is this? Well, your whole salvation depends upon it. There would no be, be no obedience in your place of the law that you broke had it not happened. There would, be, there would be no one to pay the penalty on the cross for your sins had this not taken place. Without this, there would be no cross. There would be no re- resurrection. There would be no salvation. So God the Son took our nature, and God incarnate also took our condition. As our catechism says, he came in circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. He came to save sinners who experienced the effects of the fall, to bear our misery, to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. His birth already points to the cross. Do you see it? He was utterly humiliated that he might go and bear our sins on the cross. In a sense, the crutch is a prophecy of the cross. The Christmas message is not sentimentalism. The Christmas message is about sin and wrath and grace. It is about our rebellious natures. It is about Christ who came to bear God's wrath and to remove God's judgment. Christmas is about Christ born to atone for the sins of sinners. I could not reach God, but God reached me. And he came to take our nature. He came to share our condition And in doing so, think of this, in doing so, he shows you who God is because he is God become flesh, and he shows you what God is like. Someone has said what is personal can only be expressed in a person. Now think about that. Do you want to know what God is like? Have you sometimes said, oh, I wish I could really know what God is like? Well, you see it right here. Can you not see here love incarnate? Can you imagine such love that the holy God would descend, that he would come down and down and down and down, infinitely down to take our nature, to come into a sinful world, to bear the penalty of our sins? He assumed our nature to bear the penalty of our sins. Yes, by all means see love in the crutch. But see this love also, this love that is shown in Calvary ultimately, intervening to save wrath-deserving sinners. So do not sentimentalize God's love. Rather, see the love of God against the backdrop of the revealed reality that our God is a consuming fire. The cradle leads to the cross where we see God's inexpressible inexpressible indignation against sin and what it took to redeem us by sending his own son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath bearer in our place. His humble birth, taking our nature, taking our condition. But this leads me to underscore and to ask, who is this? This is the fourth thing for you note-takers. Who is this? Who is this? 
On Wednesday nights, we've been working our way in Vespers through the book of Isaiah. We recently came to the 40th chapter of Isaiah. And we've been there for a couple of weeks, and we will continue it when Vespers resumes after Christmas. But in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, we have the revelation of the high and lifted up and exalted God. Let me read just a few lines here and there from the 40th chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Or, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Or listen to this. To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like him, saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And yet, in this chapter, that speaks of this great transcendent God, in which he says, I am the creator, I am the incomparable God, I am sovereign over men and things. I am totally sovereign over the universe. He also says in verse 11, He, this God, He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather His lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who is the good shepherd of the sheep? It is Jesus Christ our Lord. I am the God who so cares about my people that I will enter into this world and assume your nature and your condition, and I will go to the cross, that the blood of the everlasting covenant cleanse your heart, and that I might be the good shepherd of my sheep. This is the child that was born in Bethlehem. Our catechism says, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This the transcendent God did for sinners. As old Samuel Rutherford put it, the hands that span the heavens pierced with nails the feet of him that treadeth on the stars nailed to a tree. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of the incarnation of our Lord and why he came, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking taking 
taking the form of a servant. The form of a servant. This is the transcendent eternal creator taking the form of a servant. Why? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's why he came. The son was born in utter humiliation. But Paul goes on to tell us that he will not return in utter humiliation. He is the risen, exalted one, and this is what he says about his return. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He came in utter humiliation. He was born in a barn, a cave perhaps, laid in a feeding trough, was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He went to a cross and he bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners and paid the penalty and price of sin there on that cross. But he rose from the dead, people of God, and one of these days he will come again and every knee will bow before him in utter humiliation before the exalted Christ. And if you have not bowed the knee, bow now. You come to know him by faith. Believe in Christ and you are saved. Do we understand? Do we understand on this Sunday before Christmas that majesty descended? Majesty descended. As Calvin so beautifully put it, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to him. It is not in your power to ascend to God. There would be no one who could pay the penalty of our sins but him. You cannot do it. You cannot work it up. You cannot earn it. You cannot do it. But he did what you and I could not. He was gashed. He was beaten. He was torn. He was crucified. Man sinned, man must pay the penalty, but only God can save. Therefore, the miracle, God became man without ceasing to be God, went to a cross, and his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value so that no matter how deep your sin and rebellion is against God, His blood is infinitely valuable and can cleanse you from your sin. And so, on this Sunday before Christmas, may we, people of God, be utterly and completely amazed at the condescension. May we worship. May we adore. May we, all through the year until next Christmas and all through our lives, be bound in our hearts to this great one who did this great thing as we receive him by faith and as we consider that the transcendent God who revealed himself in Isaiah 40 was born an infant in Bethlehem of Judea. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, how we pray that this would be the day in which you laid down the weapons of your warfare You come to him 
saying, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And you trust in Christ alone for your redemption. For there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven whereby you may be saved, but the name of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, who went to a cross, who rose again, and who will come, who will come as the exalted Lord of all. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.